Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode... We need to find a place that already has a market of people going to it. It has good accessibility. But then to the title of of this podcast, we had this feeling, if we build it, they will come because there was already a market of people, but there wasn't a product like this for that higher end of the market. Hello, it's great you can join me for this episode of Build It, Thou Come, because one of my guests this week certainly has entrepreneurialism in her DNA, yet she flies under the public profile radar. So let's get it out there up front. Hayley Bailey's dad is Aussie adventurer and entrepreneur Dick Smith, who created and built not just one massive electronics empire of Dick Smith retail stores, but he also built a grocery food business. And his daughter seems to have inherited both his love of adventure as well as his startup spirit. Hayley, with husband James, created, developed, and are still the self-described detail-addicted driving force behind their clutch of high-end luxury lodges dotted in some of Australia's most spectacular locations, including Capella Lodge on beautiful Lord Howe Island, Longitude 131 in the central desert heart at Uluru and Southern Ocean Lodge on Kangaroo Island off the remote coastline of South Australia. Haley's experience working on adventure expedition cruises, plus her former role at Tourism Australia, combined with James's hotel management career and his expertise, which made for a great recipe to become luxury hoteliers. Over the past 18 years, the pair have built what they call relaxed luxury in stunning remote destinations. They called it Bailey Lodges. But it hasn't all been luxuriously smooth sailing. They battled the GFC and its dramatic reduction of their American visitors, and more recently, COVID-19 and the devastating bushfires of summer 2020 really walloped them for six. So here's part one of my chat with Haley and James Bailey, creators of Bailey Lodges. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Haley and James Bailey, and thank you so much for joining me on Build It, They'll Come. Thank you, Helen. Thank you. It's great to have you here, particularly at this time when, you know, we in Australia at least are really starting to open up again. People are thinking about travel. Many want to travel and certainly in Australia, we have generally high vaccination rates. Now, we'll speak about COVID and its impact a little later, but at this stage of our conversation, let's open up on something hopefully positive. You want people, obviously, to start travelling again, but what is your prognosis about a healthy return to travel in 2022 within Australia and to your lodges, Hayley? Well, I think we've been very fortunate that because our borders have been closed and we have a very unique kind of product that typically 
was mostly international, had mostly international visitation and guests coming from all over the world to stay in our properties, we've been able to draw on all of the Aussies that weren't able to actually, you know, leave our shores. And so we have done exceptionally well during the times that our businesses were open in the states that they were open in. Yes, there's been definitely the challenges of when borders got closed and all of a sudden you've just lost a coal market and you quickly try and refill your rooms. Absolute challenges within our poor reservations Which team. Which we of- will get to that <laughs> a bit later. So you built up an Australian audience that you didn't have pre-pandemic? Well, we've always had a very small portion of them, but I feel that people were so so keen to get out and actually explore their own backyards that there was definitely a, a lot of pent-up demand of those Aussies that we're able to to draw from. I think it also depends on what property. So depending on which, which lodge. So Capella Lodge on Lord Howe Island always had a great Australian group of guests. But what we found with that is a whole new group of guests that would never have thought of going to Lord Howe because, of course, they were off in Europe or wherever they were would normally go at that time of year. So we found there's a whole group of people that hopefully will become regular guests because that's what often happens with our lodges is people come back time and time again. So 2022, what are you thinking seriously? Wow. I think no one really knows what's on the horizon, but I think moving forward, I think there is going to be still lots of Australians that are cautious about international travel, although like many people like us, we've we've already booked a trip to head off skiing actually to, to Telluride in March. But I think there's many people that will think, yeah, let's give it a miss overseas in 22 and let's stay here and you know, continue to explore Australia. So that's a, a positive for the domestic market, not necessarily positive for the likes of Qantas restarting its international operations, but I'm sure there'll be plenty of Aussies that are still wanting to spread their wings and, and head overseas. What I think we need to be a little bit cautious about is understanding how quickly the international market will come back. And I think that's going to be a little bit progressive over 22 and probably really hit the straps again in 23. That's my prediction. Not sure. What about you, Hayley? And I think some of the modelling, I know within my time at Tourism Australia, the modelling is showing not a return to sort of pre pre-pandemic international visitation until at least 2024. And I think that is is quite realistic in just the way the world is and, the, and especially that that high, in our level of the market, that high-end traveller maybe is a little bit more cautious as well. And I think the reality is it's going to take a little bit longer than, than we probably all, all think. So 2024 from March 2020, that's a long time for people to withstand loss of revenue. It is, but then we've also got to remember we still do have our Aussie market yeah. and bucket list places like Uluru and we found that with Longitude 131, all of, all of a sudden we went from I think about 20% domestic to, you know, being completely full at, at 90%, you know, of, of Aussies wanting to get out there and, and see Uluru because they, they've always sort of thought about doing it but never got around to it. So hopefully there's still a few more out there that, that want to have these experiences. Well, many of us obviously have heard of Longitude 131 at Uluru Katajuta and also people know Lord Howe Island and you mentioned Capella Lodge, your lodge there. But paint us a picture of what is Bailey Lodges now. Well, James and I built the the business with Lord Howe and and then we secured the land. In 2003 you began and Lord Howe was built in 2004? it was an existing property that we did a significant renovation on and we've continued to 
to put a lot of love and care into her evolution. Then we secured land on Kangaroo Island and built Southern Ocean Lodge. Then along the way, Longitude 131 came into the portfolio and then we had an opportunity about two and a half years ago with a private equity business out of Denver in the US and they acquired the business, which their their model is around obviously the growth of the portfolio and and to secure other properties of of similar in places of natural or cultural significance. And so they acquired Silky Oaks Lodge up in the Daintree, which is exciting because that's about to reopen after nearly a $20 million refurbishment. Then Hooker Lodge in New Zealand, the iconic sort of the grandfather of, of the luxury lodges of, of down in the Southern Hemisphere here, Claire Quatt Wilderness Lodge in Canada, and then most recently the Louise in the Barossa Valley in South Australia. So you're still heavily involved though, even though you brought in private equity? Yes, we are. So we're both founders and creative directors. So I think we're, um, as our American friends like to term us, we're the guardians of the secret sauce. So <laughs> which is our, you know, I suppose our special mix of really what what makes us tick. And what is that secret sauce? Well, the secret sauce really starts with the most amazing location. I've always said that the the plate that the site has to have the wow factor. That's first and foremost. And then what we've done is we've added a, a fairly unique mix, which is contemporary design, contemporary architectural design. Hopefully, it has a real sense of place and a synergy with that incredible location. And then a great food and wine experience that harnesses local produce wherever possible. And then a way to experience that incredible that location so interpretive experiences a way to interface and whether that be great nature great food and wine experiences wild coastlines you know or the outback you know it it really is its key so it's much more than a room but the other I suppose, special ingredient for us is what we term relaxed luxury. And that really comes from something that we instigated right back at Capella Lodge, which is first name service. And we like to call all of our staff to learn our guests first names and for it feel like you're coming home. And that's what it really should feel like, coming home and a real sense of generosity. So you as a couple developed either built from scratch or refurbished three of your lodges and then you've added another three once private equity came in. Yep, that's right. I mean, you really have sort of nailed that area of bespoke, simply elegant but very luxurious and yet almost wilderness positions, as you say, those very exotic, fabulous places. Yeah. So the locations, I think it's something that comes from both of our pasts. And for me, I grew up with a family that was involved in Queensland Islands. And also then my early career was working with P&O throughout a number of Queensland Islands and also places like, so funnily enough, Silky Oaks Lodge. I was the opening, I was the general manager there in 93 and 94. And I think I remember you from there. Oh yeah. God. My husband <laughs> and I stayed there many uh, years you know, ago. Long white shorts and, you know, Ralph Lauren shirt or something on, <laughs> but probably, probably right. God, it's coming up for 30 years. So so that's rather uh, defining to think that we're now involved very heavily in the re- rebirth of, of Silky Oaks. But what's interesting is I always had a, a, a love of hospitality and a love of special places. Probably Heron Island on the Barrier Reef was was 
the place where I really learned that love of nature, but also hospitality within nature. And in terms of how, how well, did you just get to in, know that? Just in did you work because, there? Yeah, did you so go I actually there? worked so- there. And then I also, in later years, was the marketing manager for the property. But I actually pretty much grew up with that in my blood. And my dad was involved with it. So I think I used to visit ever since I was four years old. So that was something that was not not at all foreign to me like it just became natural that sort of hospitality in remote locations and Haley had spent more than a decade on expedition cruise ships traveling the world but also came from a family that liked to explore the world in Australia so we combined those talents together and really then thought okay well what what can we do and together what can we do to harness those talents and so for us really it was the the birth of high-end experiential tourism and developing you know, luxury lodges in vast, wild, open places. So I think it's more than just the bed you sleep in. It's about immersing yourself in the environment, whether it's the, the food and wine, the paddock to plate, or the naturalist guide taking you out and, and showing you or telling you a story about something unique to where you are. So you really leave there more enriched from the experience. What is the difference between a lodge and a hotel? Oh, is there a difference? I mean, you thought about that, obviously, I guess. Well, it's an interesting thing. And I think the going back to in time, if I think about what I really liked, the properties that I really liked in my past. So I used to love Badara Island. It was part of the portfolio. I loved Lizard Island. They were smaller. So, and I think one of the people, I suppose, in tourism that I've always looked up to is Adrian Zacker, who developed Amman Resorts. And most of those properties were less than 40 rooms. So for us, looking at what what did we want to create, we knew we wanted it to be high end. We did a lot of research in New Zealand. We did this amazing trip when we had a uh, very young children and went and stayed in like four or five of the top lodges in New Zealand. And We left the children at home. Yeah, that's right. I was going oh, yeah, to say definitely. that would have been an expensive trip. <laughs> uh, that's They're right. beautiful, no, they those were, lodges. Uh, they but- certainly wouldn't have appreciated it, probably not then or now. And we had the most incredible experience to travel around and see what others had done. And New Zealand was really the pioneer in many ways of lodges. But what we took away from that was that we wanted to do something very contemporary and we wanted to celebrate Australia because a lot of the New Zealand lodges sort of have their roots in a way with, they're very European, a little bit starchy and a little bit formal. And we wanted to do something quite different and that relaxed luxury is where we took it. But going back to how is a lodge different to a hotel? Well, to us, a lodge is, a, is an experience. It's about feeling at home. It's about interfacing with other guests and also the place we are and also the staff. And it's, it's that whole mixed up sort of all of those attributes all together that really make it different to a hotel and not in any way homogenous. You mentioned that you, you're actually not really accidental luxury travel hoteliers, are you? Because you've had a family life in it. And Haley, your family, obviously, your father is very well known, Dick Smith, the renowned Australian environmentalist, adventurer and entrepreneur. So I guess you have travel, adventure, exotic locales, sort of in your blood too. Absolutely. It was an incredible childhood. 
helicopter camping. I just wanted to be going to the Gold Coast like most of my friends and and instead (laughs) we were going to the Canadian Arctic to go out on skidoos and sleep in igloos. But, no, it was was an incredible. Did you appreciate it, do you reckon, as a kid or is it more looking back? I think. Yeah, I think it's probably more looking back a little bit, but at the time it was just it was just so much fun and life was just a constant travel was constant. I think it made the world seem a very small place from a very young age and and being a global citizen and what that sort of means. I really appreciate that I was exposed to so many countries and cultures for my young, younger years that I feel that that led into working on the expedition. I worked on expedition ships for an American company Limblad for just over seven years, travelled all over the world, Antarctica, the Arctic. I worked as part of the expedition team initially as a marine naturalist and I drove the Zodiacs. I then worked as an expedition leader doing more of the the admin sort of side of the, the expeditions. But it was understanding that there is a traveller out there, there's high net worth individuals that wanted to actually immerse themselves in these countries and cultures. And then when I met James and he came from very much had the had gone to hotel school, came from from that background, we had this common interest and passion about creating something that we knew that there's a there's a market of people out there that are looking for these kinds of experiences. And I feel now it's much more prevalent and there is, I mean, there's even in the expedition travel industry, I mean, the amount of new ships that are being built to take people to the most far-flung corners of the globe, that's only quite recent. You know, when I worked on these ships, you know, 25 years ago, there was just a handful of companies that- it's still that, quite exotic really yes, then, yes. wasn't it? Yes, So now it's becoming more common and people are wanting to have these experiences. So that's what James and I have just been so fortunate because we've been able to combine our passions and the things that we, you know, love and to be able to create experiences that we've, and I feel that's one of the reasons why we have had success in this kind of, in this kind of tourism um, business because of the the experiences we're giving, especially our international visitors. Yeah. Hayley, what do you think you learned or took from your father's great adventure spirit, but also his entrepreneurialism. Oh, there's so many good, good sayings. Do everything in parallel. That's a good one. What does that mean? Well, we've had it. We've had many examples like this when I think of a good one is when we acquired the land on Kangaroo Island for Southern Ocean Lodge. At a similar time, we had the opportunity to do a development down in Tasmania and there was some land, which it was, it was, Two things were going at the same time, but as Dad always said, you just keep working through both of them because we had a lot of hurdles along the way of getting approvals and and lobbying government and different things. And so we kind of kept going on both of them. And then when we saw that the Kangaroo Island project looked way more likely because of the support we got from the South Australian government, the Tourism Commission, and we are able to just right. Let's do that one, and we park the other one. So I think, yeah, that's something that he's often said is, you know, you just never know how things are going to play out. And I think the other one that I always take from it is really good communication skills with all your staff, with your way you carry yourself as well. You know, to be a to be a great communicator and and try be the best you can at clear lines of understanding. And and then I think probably the other one too is our systems and processes. And I know that that's, it's interesting because dad just wrote his biography and I've 
I've been reading parts of it over. It's just just come out in the last couple of weeks. I've been reading parts of it. And there's lots of stories in there that even I didn't know, but there there's this underlying theme around his business, which I thought, oh, that's isn't that funny? We do the same thing in our business, and that's our procedures and systems. And in our business, it's called BIMS, the Bailey Integrity Management System. And that means that any staff member that works at any property, and they, for example, they work in housekeeping, and in the evenings we do turn down and there's a special card that says this is exactly how turn down looks. The candles lit here, the the music's played here. This is how the bed looks. This is where the gift goes. Everything is specifically done. So there's no well, technically, hopefully, every turn down looks exactly the same instead of going, oh, well, this is sort of roughly what we do. And and I think that's something that dad has had achieved greatly in all of his businesses with that way of procedural kind of attention to detail. James, your family obviously you said was involved, your father was involved in hotels and islands. Yeah, that's right. My father they was- They were quite uh, entrepreneurial yeah, too, your well, folks. Yeah, he actually a bit different. So he wasn't an entrepreneur, although he probably was an entrepreneur within a very large organisation. So he worked for P&O pretty much all of his life after immigrating to Australia. Actually, he met my mum travelling to, was a psychologist and uh, was travelling from Brisbane to the UK to study. And he was working in the merchant merchant fleet at the time because, of course, of course that's how you travelled back then and on a ship. And uh, they met and he came to Australia and worked his way up from the the wharves and along the way amassed a real interest in islands and island tourism. How do you get that sort of sense of what a customer really wants? I mean, obviously you've travelled a lot, so I guess do you base it just on, oh, well, I'd expect this. How do you manage that attention to detail and teach it to I think just to start with it's innate in a way. And, look, I'm OCD, Hayley will will say that. In fact, uh, she's really messy and I'm really tidy. Um, (laughs) But when people ask me what has made our business successful, I say three things, details, details and more bloody details. That's the reality and that's what we live by. And what does that mean, say, to me, in reality? To me, it's quality, consistency and just basically doing things with great integrity. That's what it boils down to. And in many ways, it's doing things the way that you would like them done when you're staying somewhere yourself. I mean, we often talk about, well, we just created a product that we liked you know, where everything was all inclusive, where you don't have to put your hand in your pocket all the time, where, you know, you can walk up to the bar and help yourself to browse the fridge. I mean, it's like a big adult lolly shop, you know, the bars so and some like of our properties. it's like being in someone's home. Yeah, that's right. More and than it, a hotel. Exactly. And you should feel at home. And those sort of details, 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 that obviously goes through to the way you manage and train staff too. Yeah, well, staff's an interesting topic actually. And if, I mean, one of the hardest things in our world of tourism is staffing. And it's something that, well, we're now seeing play out in, sure. in Australia. But in it fact, was not really, just in your industry. No, that's at right. The moment. And it, but it was really hard pre COVID. The industry was calling out desperate for staff and desperate for more, the availability of more international skilled staff that we can bring into Australia to actually work and also assist with training Australians in, in hospitality. I mean, Australians can be absolutely fantastic hospitality assets and we love the sense of place that Australians bring. I just wish a lot more Australians would come and work in tourism and hospitality 
basically, because that's what we need. And you look at all of these supposed yeah, people unemployed out or- there. Well, come and get a job in tourism and especially regional tourism. Live and love your country and go and explore and work along the way. That's what we need. But it really is a massive issue out there at the moment. Sure is. How are you managing it? Well, we are in many ways lucky. We have attractive products that people, young people do enjoy when we get them. And we're very lucky on Lord Howe. We have a great group of loyal loyal team members there. Which you'd think would be really hard to a- attract people and keep them. Well, it is. And that's why you, have, you do have turnover. We're lucky somewhere like Lord Howe, there's a great community and people come in and spend longer, but the turnover in some of the other lodges is much higher and it is indeed in a lot of remote tourism in Australia. And so that's why systems and procedures are so important and on-the-job training, just so you can maintain that level of consistency and quality. Yeah. Hayley, you were working on the expedition boats, the very sort of quality ones that go to great far-flung places on the planet. You're also a dive expert, I believe, and one of your great buddies and diving instructors maybe was Valerie Taylor, the wonderful shark expert and renowned Australian. Valerie taught me to scuba dive when I was 10 years old in the swimming pool at home. And then I was fortunate, and she she was actually the reason why I ended up working on these expedition ships was was through her. And we're still dear friends to this day, and have done many trips, even into her eighties. She's now in her mid to late eighties, and we've been diving together in in recent years. Still, she's still working on the expedition ships, and sometimes I go along as her companion since since Ron passed away. Yeah, she's so- also actually the reason that we're together which is another interesting, we actually met for the first time on Heron Island at a dive festival that Valerie was at as a guest speaker. Oh, how And Hayley came along as a guest and I was running the dive festival. That's true. That's so. how we met. <laughs> how lovely. So that sort of leads to why did you leave that sort of more adventuresome side of work? You could have stayed working for these companies. You obviously love doing a bit of adventure yourself. Where did the idea, how did the idea crystallise that we're going to start our own business together? Was was it you? Was it James? Was it both of you? You had a hankering to do the luxury end of it rather than sort of the real adventure end? Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting question and I think just thinking it through, we often I think in life when you look back, you sometimes go down paths that don't work out and paths that you sort of think, well, that was sort of the wrong turn. But in fact, in my case, it turned out to be the right turn. Haley's father had a food business, Dick Smith Foods. And when Haley and I were married and very early on, Dick said to Haley and I, would, would we like to take on that business? And I thought, oh, wow, amazing. You know, having a father-in-law like Dick Smith and, you know, this is so exciting to, you know, basically ultimately have our own business and we, we're working together. What I found though, and I left my job at p and I was the managing director of p Resorts at the time, which was at a very young age, was, a you know, just a fantastic, fantastic gig. And very exciting. But I, you know, took that plunge and went into this new business. But what I discovered was that I didn't have passion 
for food and for you know FMCG consumer goods. Um, I just really didn't didn't like that industry. And I think my old boss said to me when we talked about it, and he said, you know, hotels they get in your blood, and you know, hospitality gets in your blood. And I I often say to my boys, I say, you know, what's so important is ultimately doing something that you have a passion for and that you love doing, because then it's not a job. It just becomes your life. And in our case, it became our life. But it was actually Haley's father that he was the one that encouraged us at the time to look at Lord Howe as an option. I think so we just were- a minute, you're in his food business and you're discovering that, oh, we don't like this. How are we well, going to tell well, we sort of, we sort of, like it the business? Well, it sort of all just happened, as, as he would say, in parallel. So, <laughs> and we really just decided that it wasn't for us. And we so we had a sort of an amicable sort of split from the food business and really then set out to think, okay, well, what are we going to do next? And that was, you know, that was something I knew I was good at. And we, in and it was his idea to go into Capella. No, well, yes and no. It was his idea, I think, to look at look at lots of options, and Lord Howe was one of those I, options. I think he couldn't believe that you'd never been to That's Lord right. Howe Island when he, when James, at the time when we first met, was running P and O Australian Resorts with all those incredible properties Islands on the in, on the yeah, Great the Barrier, Barrier Reef. Reef. Yeah, and you'd never been there. And Dick has spent, you know, his dad spent his young informative years rock climbing out there. He was on his honey. Took my mum on their honeymoon fifty something oh, years really? ago there. So he just just loves it. And so when we went out for the first time, we thought, well, wow, this would be amazing. Wouldn't it be incredible if we could do something here? And it's actually very difficult to own property on Lord Howe Island. You have to be a, a Lord Howe Islander and there's a certain procedure. If a property wants to be sold and an islander doesn't want to buy it, there is a sort of small window of opportunity. And, and we were just very fortunate that within a few years of us having an interest in starting our own business, doing doing hotels together that we had the opportunity to purchase Capella Lodge. Wow. Well, what what became Capella Lodge, and it really is the iconic spot on Lord Howe. So it was great luck, great timing, and I suppose, yeah, we've never looked back from there. Right. So was the idea from the beginning we're going to go luxury, we're going to change Capella, you didn't build it from scratch, you changed it and you were really going for that luxury market? Yeah, and we took it and we took it up market and we've continued to invest in that in that product. That said, Southern Ocean Lodge on Kangaroo Island is definitely the flagship or was the flagship and will be again. And I'm sure we're going to talk about that a lot more later. But I just wonder about, you know, Lord Howe is is not an inexpensive place to get to for families. It, and, you know, the flights don't run all the time. And then it's a most beautiful nature, natural mm. place when you get there. But it's, it was still a risk, wasn't it, Haley, to think we can attract high-end people to come to this island and stay with us and pay us a fair chunk of money. I think it was a calculated risk because we, we only have nine rooms and we looked at it in the sense, well, if we can get this particular rate because we're going to be giving a, a product like this and we've had an incredible loyal guest repeat visitation, we deliver a product that is consistently what what our guests are expecting and so they know when they come back that's what they're going to get and they, and they share that with their friends their colleagues within the industry the the word spreads and if you i think with anything in business if you can provide a consistent very well delivered product 
then the, the, yes, there is a risk in everything, but this was very calculated in, and I think we always felt uh, we've got this. And I think we felt it too with, with Southern Ocean Lodge. You know, that was a massive gamble. Yeah. Just with- again, before we get to Southern Ocean Lodge, because obviously that's a wonderful jewel, has been a wonderful jewel in the, in the Crown, how did you fund that first lodge? Can I ask that? Because a lot of entrepreneurs... Did you borrow from family? Did Was Dick Smith a shareholder, the only shareholder, or did you have savings? No. Did you go uh, to the bank? Will I jump in on that one? Yes, you got to be got to tell the truth. you got to tell the truth. Well, we certainly <laughs> helped out. So Hardy's family helped us, but we had a loan on commercial terms from the family. Yes, yeah, so we and, had to pay uh, the loan plus the, the, interest, the interest. And it was fantastic feeling because we know ultimately, yes, we had that step up and it would have been very hard to have got that debt financing elsewhere would at it? the time. Yeah, yeah, it would have, you know, first first foray into this, you know, and and in many cases unproven that what we were what we were setting out to do. But it was a great feeling because we can look back and we do look back and know that we paid back every cent. Yes, and, absolutely. Uh, and it was also successful from year one, really? uh, which was which was you know fantastic for us and which set us up to do other and things. When you say successful from year one, do you mean it's profitable from year one, yes. or no? The rooms are full pretty much all year profitable. round. Profitable, yeah, profitable yeah. from year one. That's extraordinary, yeah. isn't it? Uh, yeah, our business has been very successful in a area of tourism that often people would, other hoteliers might even laugh at us and go, "Wow, well, you've only got so few rooms." But of course, what they don't actually factor in is, well, it's the rate times the number of rooms is ultimately your revenue. And, you know, personally for us, we'd much prefer to be, you know, looking after, say, a a 10 or 20 room property with with a room rate of, you know, $2,000 a night than a 200 room property with a room rate of 100 bucks a night. Yeah. And you're trying to attract hundreds of people to an island, which would be tricky. The other thing I think that's interesting is going back in time because almost 20 years, it's 18 years years this year since since we launched Capella. And what I think we've seen over that time is the change in in luxury and perception of luxury. And we keep talking about experiences. And what we were really punting on was that there were people out there that would pay for experiences and immersion in nature, but they still at the end of the day want a great glass of wine, a beautiful meal. And what we've seen over the last decade or two decades is a total shift in the market where in many cases, less is more. And so luxury has changed and people's perception of luxury has changed and their expectations have changed. So do you think, in fact, you, whether you were prescient at the time or not, but you absolutely were able to capitalise on that changing view? Not only had we have we been in, uh, Australia certainly has been in, you know, positive economic growth, people have been doing well, but this thirst for luxury and kind of remoteness or wilderness or special experience. And it's something that you can also see. You saw New Zealand do it, as I said, a little bit more conservative, a little bit more uptight and a very food and wine focused. But if you look at, say, Southern Africa with the luxury safari camps, I mean, that's an interesting analogy because at the same time, period, Southern Africa has boomed as well. And then the luxury lodges in Australia have grown out out of nothing. So Southern Ocean Lodge, you you said, Haley, you spotted this piece of land. What drew you to Kangaroo Island in, you know, the wilds of the Southern Ocean, really? 
there's many parts to this story, but I think initially James, with his time at P and O, they'd actually gone down there to look at doing doing something because there was an incredible number of international day visitors coming to the island. It obviously had a great name, Kangaroo Island. It's Australia's Galapagos, the zoo without fences. And there's there'd been a number of operators, Craig Wickham from Exceptional Kangaroo Island, who for many years has travelled the globe and inspired international Americans especially to come and visit Kangaroo Island. And so they were coming over for the day a lot. There was a few bed and breakfasts and a few motels, but we sort of realised, and James, you looked at it previously with Pino, and we just realised here here is a destination that we have a very strong ethos when anything we're doing with our hotels is we never want to try and create a destination. We need to find a place that already has a market of people going to it. It has good accessibility. But then to the title of, of this podcast, we had this feeling if we build it, they will come because there was already a market of people, but there wasn't a product like this for right. that higher end of the market. So if people wanted to stay longer than the day trip or perhaps in a in a motel or a what a camping ground, was there really not much well, there? Well, look, there was a variety of product, but nothing yeah. really high end except for some some really small, fabulous sort of farm stays or bed and breakfast. But it so, must have still been a gigantic and risky leap. James. It was. I mean, I, I can remember, you know, being on site down there, you know, talking to, you know, travel wholesalers and, and people just, and people going, you guys are mad, you know, you're building this in the middle of nowhere, you know, next stop Antarctica, literally, as the wind blows. So it really was something that was, I think it was a big risk. What was the key to making it work? Because it really became your flagship. It was the jewel in the crown. Yeah, I think the the key to making Southern Ocean Lodge work was, well, look, there was a number of keys, but one was the incredible site. And the site, the south coast of Kangaroo Island is wild and woolly and windy. It can also be like the Mediterranean. I mean, it can be many, really? many things on, on any given day. But the, the site is incredible. So it's got the wow factor. You people, I mean, one of the most defining moments for us is, you know, has been watching people walk through the door of Southern Ocean Lodge and their jaws just, they don't know where to look. You know, the view is just Because you insane. don't see the ocean until you actually walk in the doors of oh, the great room. How wonderful. But I think the in terms of what really made it tick and made it work was the quality of what we what we achieved there. And look, not sort of playing our own trumpet, but Ultimately, in hindsight, we were pioneers in doing a high-end luxury lodge, a new build in a very, very remote location with all of the complexities that go with it. I mean, there wasn't even a road to it. I mean, the first time we went there, we walked in along we had the to coast. Walk. <laughs> so, how and did you get guests in when you? Well, we had to build the road. We had to build the road. Build a road. Build a road, and we had no water, no power, no. Wastewater treatment, no, nothing. Is it everything? So it's really like a an island on an island. Extraordinary. But I think doing something you know unique, and I, that's a bit of an overused word, yeah. but it really was unique. And I think what we took on there was we set the bar in. I'm going to call it high end nature based tourism, and. In many ways, as Hattie said, we, I've always said you never want to have to create the destination. 
But what we did there was that we gave a product, we put it on the menu and said, okay, well, here is a product so someone can come and stay and experience Kangaroo Island in, in style. So that's, that was there. But what we also discovered was that we actually created a product inversely related, which was effectively people were coming to the lodge specifically. That was the, their ancillary purpose. That was it. They wanted to come to Southern Ocean Lodge. And sorry, Kangaroo Island became ancillary. Yeah. So two different markets in the end. When you started, was it always a big vision you had for Bailey Lodges or was it just, oh, we'll just refurbish this one on Lord Howe, we'll be fine after that? No, I think we've, look, we're very, very hands-on and very, very focused on the detail and that's the only way we, we really know how to operate. So when we got to three properties, we were also toying at the time with Bailey's Sydney, a property that we didn't go ahead with in the rocks here in Sydney. So that would have made number four. And I think we were probably going to tap out at five. That would have been, I think, our the extent of our, our size. And I think that would have felt that we could still have our finger on the pulse and a finger on the details. We still do have an incredible site in Tasmania on the um, Tasman Peninsula, which is something that we really have for the future. It has an approval for a 20-room I thought uh, something lodge. was supposed to start. Remarkable so, Lodge. Yeah. So we've basically put it on ice at the moment. Right. A number of the factors in there, the the burning down of Southern Ocean Lodge, the COVID, whole range of reasons. So it's really something for the future and one of the most incredible sites. And we're very lucky. We're very privileged to own it. Have you mastered risk taking? And is that important? Oh, that's interesting because mm. I think Haley is actually a better risk taker mm. than me. I'm mm. this I'm the stress head. <laughs> a total stress head and I get really wound up over 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 many things. But when there's some big decisions to make, it's often been Haley that sort of pushed me, you know. Out of your comfort zone. Of comfort zone. I'll stand my ground on something that I just and I and I feel I feel too that sometimes, especially early on, it's James's corporate background, which you have a, a very different mindset in than being being it's your own your private enterprise, your own dollars, your own everything. That there was just certain things that I was like, well, if you, yes, at P and O you would have done that, but this is not P and O. We can no, we sh- we should be a bit arrogant here. We're going to stand our ground on this, and we look back now and we think, well, thank goodness there were certain things that would have had made just massive differences in the success of the business. Is I, that I feel. Criti- little, little yeah, things. is that critical in a startup to a sort of master risk taking to take the breath? take it and think, I do have to take some risks. Yeah. And look, that's the reality. Starting a business, you've just got to do it. And you've just, you do have to take that risk. And we did. And look, there were certainly some very, very stressful moments Yeah, and along along the way. But I think as we, and as we've grown and we've become much more confident in what we do and how we do it, but we still only know a certain way, yes, which and is I, I our also, way. I also think you've got to go with your gut. Yeah. So when some of these early on risks that we took early on where I sort of view them as quite calculated where James was probably going what what really and because my gut was telling me I know I I feel really confident I feel confident enough that yes it's a risk but so I think I probably would 
would definitely hold back if my gut feeling wasn't like I don't really know this one but I think when you really feel it you've just got to go for it. Hayley and James there is so much more I want to ask you about particularly the impact of COVID and of course the bushfires and the devastating burning down of Southern Ocean Lodge in early 2020. So we'll continue this discussion and we'll have it next week in part two. Thank you. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Can't wait. I hope you enjoyed Build It, Thou Come. Let me know via Twitter and LinkedIn. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into an empire.